Let me ask you to turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 1, and we're returning to our series we're calling Sufficient, as we see that theme throughout, throughout this book. And we're going to pick up our reading today from uh, verse 12, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 12. For our boast is this the testimony of our conscience, that we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God, and supremely so toward you. So we're not writing to you anything other than what you read and understand, and I hope you'll fully understand, just as you did partially uh, understand us, that on the day of our Lord Jesus, you will boast of us as we will boast of you. Because I was sure of this, I wanted to come to you first so that you might have a second experience of grace. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and have you send me on my way to Judea. Was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Do I make my plans according to the flesh, ready to say yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no, for the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in him it is always Yes, for all the promises of God and their yes in Him. That's why it is through Him that we utter our Amen to God for His glory. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put His seal on us and given us His Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. But I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. Not that we lorded over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, for you stand firm in your faith. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Lord, now we would ask that you would uh, teach us from this passage. There's some difficult things in here to, to understand. We need your help. We need your Holy Spirit to make clear to us what you have for us today. And so we pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. So this passage uh, that I, I just read um, is a difficult passage. Um, it probably, as you heard me read it, you you thought, "What? Where in the world is this going? What? I can't even follow really the the argument here, the the sentences, and and it is difficult. And so for that reason, I'm going to approach it a little bit differently. 
than uh, many of my sermons. We always uh, derive from the passage, the, the truths, uh, but often it's in more of an outline form. Well, well today we're just going to go through verse by verse and uh, seek to follow in this letter uh, where Paul was, was going to this. This section begins the body of the letter. And here's what's going on. Because of providential circumstances, uh, Paul had to change his travel plans. Uh, he had evidently told them, I will be back, here's when I'll be back, and here's what will, will go on. But things took place that caused him to, to change that. And evidently, uh, Paul had some who were criticizing him in, in Corinth, and they seized on this opportunity uh, to, to criticize him, to, to say that he's just waffling, you can't trust him. Look, he said he was going to do this, and, and now he doesn't do that. And so what we're seeing here in, in beginning this letter, now we already had a, a, a number of verses, but that was really all basically introductory. And so as he begins the letter, he begins really with a, a defense of himself. And so as we go through this, I want you to ask yourself a, a couple of questions. Um, ask yourself, you know, try to follow the argument, look at the argument, and ask yourself, why is this so important to him? Why does he need to begin the letter with this, this lengthy and seemingly defensive posture? So put that on the side burner as we try to understand what he was saying here. So down in verse 12 again, uh, it says this, For our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience, that we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God, and supremely so toward you. Now he starts out by talking about his boast, and, and typically we would say, well, boasting isn't good, that's not considered a, a good quality for a believer. But, but if you look closer, what you see is that his boast ultimately is pointing to God himself, to God's faithfulness, to God's character. And it's not boasting in, in his own uh, abilities here. So this is almost, as, as you look at this passage, it's almost like uh, the, the game show Jeopardy, where you, you have the answers uh, displayed and you, you try to figure out what the question is. But in this case, you've got uh, his defense, uh, as he, he speaks of how he's defending himself, and so you can work backwards and figure out what he was actually being accused of. And, uh, and that's, that's what we'll do here. So he, he was probably uh, being accused of not being sincere and a, a lack of integrity. And so he, in, in this verse, as he begins it, he 
talks about uh, his simplicity and godly sincerity. Now, simplicity here, it just simply means nothing was hidden. And then godly sincerity, uh, you know what sincerity is, is, but I want you to kind of put that word on hold. We're going to come back to that a little bit later, but you can see uh, basically from this what he's being accused of not being by him claiming that that is who he is. Now, how could he have uh, godly sincerity and, and simplicity and truthfulness? Well, only, only as a transformed person. Only as one who, who had Christ in him. And that's also a part of his, his argument as he defends himself. So look down in verse 13 and 14. It says, for we are not writing to you anything other than what you read and understand, and I hope you'll fully understand, just as you did partially understand us, that on the day of our Lord Jesus, you will boast of us as we will boast of you. Now, <clears throat> even though this is called Second uh, Corinthians, uh, most commentators and historians are, are convinced that, that Paul wrote at least three letters to the Corinthians. You have uh, 1 Corinthians, and then they believe there was another letter in between, and then this, not being his second letter, but really uh, at least his, his third letter uh, to them. And so notice what he says here. He talks about, what you read and understand. And what he's saying there, those are all in the same, uh, the same phraseology uh, in the original language, and he has kind of a word play here that doesn't really come through here. But what, he, what he's basically saying is, look, what I wrote to you is what I've also said to you, that I was consistent at all times. You don't have to read between the lines when I write you something uh, because what I'm writing you is the absolute truth just as if I were present with you and I were, I were there with you. I meant what I said and I'm that same person. And then you look at the phrase, he uses the phrase the day of the Lord and this is almost as a, a sidebar here but, it, but it's an important phrase because uh, what he says, the day of our Lord Jesus. All the way through the Old Testament and, and through the Scripture, we see the phrase, the day of the Lord. And, and the word Lord there is the Lord God Jehovah. So now, he uses that same phrase that they are so familiar with, the day of the Lord, but he calls it the day of the Lord Jesus. And so in doing that, he is emphasizing the character of Jesus, the divinity of Jesus, that when, when I'm talking about Jesus, I am talking about the Lord uh, God Almighty. And so he's, he's teaching them even in the way he communicates with them. Down in verse 15 then. Because I was sure of this, I wanted to come to you first so that you might have a second experience of grace. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and have you send me on my way 
to Judea. Now again, that's one of those, it's kind of hard to, to follow, but he uses the phrase, uh, the second experience of grace. And don't confuse that with some kind of a, a spiritual second blessing or anything. It's, I, I think it's much simpler than that, much more straightforward. Uh, the word grace there could be translated joy. And I'm convinced that uh, all he's saying is uh, that, that we, you know, we wanted to have this, this second joyful time together, us with you. And then he goes about explaining why his plans change. And I'm not even going to go into the geography of wanting to go on my way to Macedonia and Macedonia to Judea and all that. Uh, that that's, um, that's not the important thing here. What it's saying is, here was my plan, and then he's going to go on and explain what took place. So down in verse 17, he says this, Was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Do I make my plans according to the flesh, ready to say yes, yes, and no, no, at the same time? In other words, uh, people that are uh, making their plans in a very human way, uh, sometimes they vacillate, sometimes they make a snap decision and have to go off on it, or they can't even make a decision. And he's saying, is, is that really uh, what you're accusing me of? And that probably is what the anti-Paul crowd was accusing him of. He's saying, yes, my plans did change, but it wasn't because I'm undependable. It wasn't because I can't make decisions. It wasn't because I deceived you or I was fickle or I can't stick to my plan. It was none of that. He, he was saying that uh, that's not how I decide. That's not how I make plans. Back on March the, the 13th, um, we had in our home a dinner for uh, the people going through the membership class. And little did we know that night that that was going to be our last really any kind of church gathering for a while. In fact, to this point. That's still the case. But on Friday night, we talked about uh, a number of things. We were getting to know them and so on. And I said, well, let me tell you what's going on Sunday. And I explained to them, because uh, we all knew about the virus, we were trying to uh, stay safe and so on. I said, yes, we're going to have worship and we're going to have communion. And here's how we're going to do communion. And we had gone through a a lot of plans to make sure that it was safe and, and that uh, we wouldn't be uh, transmitting things and so on. It was going to be very different than, uh, than we normally have communion. So I explained all of that. That was Friday evening, and then Saturday came. Now on Saturday, things were moving so quickly that day. I was on the phone uh, a, a great part of that day. And by 4 o'clock on Saturday, we had determined our session had all, we'd spoken to one another, and reluctantly, but we were convinced it was the right thing to do, we determined 
that we needed to cancel our services for Sunday. Now, if somebody had it out for me, if they were trying to criticize me on something, and this didn't happen, using it as an illustration, but if somebody wanted to, they could say, well, wait a minute. You told us on Friday night we're having uh, worship on Sunday, and less than 24 hours later, you canceled worship. How can we trust what you're saying? Uh, because you vacillate so much, you're fickle. We, you're, you, when you say one thing, uh, then you do another. We can't trust you. And that's the kind of thing that was happening to Paul here. He had made plans, and then because of new information, because of other circumstances, he changed those plans, but was, was taking hits over that, where, was taking criticism from those who wanted uh, to discredit him. So <clears throat> then he gets to the core of his argument, verse 18. As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. And when he, when he says, as surely as God is faithful, this isn't one of those formulas where somebody will say, well, I swear to God this is true or something like that. That's not what he's doing here. What he's saying is, you know God is faithful. And our word, because we are trusting in Christ, we are uh, followers of Christ, our word uh, is, is true as well. So he's basing uh, his, his own faithfulness to the truth on the fact that God himself is a God of truth. And then he explains what he means by God is faithful. Down in verse 19 and 20. It says, For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus, Timothy, and I, was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes. Verse 20, for all the promises of God find their yes in him. That's why it's through him that we utter our amen to God. Now I told you Paul uses complicated sentences and, and this is just one of those. So let me boil it down. Uh, it took me a while to boil it down myself, but, uh, but let me tell you what he's saying here. He is saying Jesus Christ, who's the Son of God, was the absolute fulfillment of all of the promises of God. So what he's saying is that, that everything God promised in the Old Testament about the Messiah, everything uh, God foreshadowed about the, the Messiah, everything that was prophesied in the Old Testament about the Messiah, all of those things are fulfilled in Christ. Now here's why that's so important. If we grasp that truth, we will read the Old Testament, we will read the Scripture in a whole new way. Understanding that all of this was pointing to Christ. 
and that all of these hopes that he was presenting to his people for salvation through a Messiah, all of these are fulfilled in him. If we understand that, it will radically change how we look at the Old Testament and how we read it. Now look down at verse 21 and 22. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Now, this is for believers that he's speaking to here. So here's a question that I believe this addresses. How do we know if we are really saved or not? How does one really know that? Does it depend on me? Or does it depend on God? Let's try to answer that. First of all, a follow-up question to that is, have you trusted in Jesus Christ alone for your eternal life? And when I say all those words are carefully chosen, trusted in him alone. In other words, not saying, yes, I believe in Jesus, but I've tried to be a good person. I've tried to do this and that. I do good deeds. I help others. I go to church. I've, you know, I've been baptized. All, any of those things. You take all of those out. Have you trusted in him alone? Not any of your own works. But only the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Because that was enough. So that's the first question in terms of determining uh, how do I know if I'm really saved. If you say, yes, I get it. I am trusting in Jesus Christ alone for my eternal life. Then the second part of that is, if you've done that, then you are in Christ. You are in him. Now how do we know that? Well, look at the four things that it says he has done. Notice it doesn't talk about uh, what, what Paul has done or what the believers there had done. It says, he has anointed us. He had, by the way, these are parallel as well. He has put his seal on us, which is a firm thing, irrevocable. He has given us the Holy Spirit, and that is the guarantee. So those things. In other words, he is your assurance. Your strength and your hope and your faith, those, those are not your assurance. It all comes from him. And that's why that guarantee is firm. So as long as he is a faithful God, if you're trusting in Christ alone, as long as he is faithful, you will not be lost. 
So I want to give you two applications, and they have some subsets to them. The, the first one is about our representation of Christ to the world we live in. Uh, first of all, we need to understand, and I, I told you to think about this, why, why would Paul be so defensive? Paul was so concerned about properly representing Christ that he defended himself. That's why he was so defensive. It wasn't about his own reputation because he thought a lot of himself, but it was because that which he thought of Christ. And that's why he was so concerned when his integrity was being attacked. Now we often talk about how Jesus didn't defend himself. He didn't stand up for himself during his trials and so on. And of course, he had the, the ultimate, the absolute defense because he was perfectly innocent. But that was part of God's righteous plan to have him die for us. And now he stands before God for us. But Paul saw it as important enough to begin the body of his letter with his, his defense. But understand this, that when we've been truthful and we defend the truth, that too is a part of our credibility in this fallen world, in a world where, where truth is, is getting more and more rare it seems like. For Paul, it was necessary to defend his truth-telling because in that, it was about his witness for Christ. Now, I, I mentioned earlier that he talked about his, his godly sincerity. Uh, that word, sincere, I said to put it on the sideburn. Let's bring it, bring it back in here. And uh, folklore says that the way that that word was used um, uh, was like in the marketplace, and it was used a, a lot with potters or uh, those that, that made statues and sculptors, that kind of a thing. But, but let's talk about the pottery, what, what that means. They would sometimes put uh, a, a pot that was for sale, and in front of it, it would say, Sin Sarah. What those words mean is without wax. Sin is without, and the other is wax. Now, what did that mean? Well, a dishonest potter, yeah, when he would uh, mess up with making a pot, um, they would often use wax to fill in in the cracks or, or the holes, and they would try to sell it uh, for the same price as a, a hole and a good and a, a perfect uh, piece of pottery. And then what would happen is that if something hot was put in it or it was out in the sun, then the wax would begin to melt and the crack would show up or there'd be a, a hole in it or something like that. And so uh, you didn't ever want to buy a, a, a pot that had wax in it. And so uh, the potters, if they, they had a pot that had no wax in it, they would put a sign in front of it. It was like a, a guarantee, without wax, meaning 
that what you, what you see there is really what you are purchasing. So for the believer, for the follower of Christ, because he is faithful, that's what we should have. That kind of a sincerity, a godly sincerity. Not that we, we don't have those, uh, those flaws, but we don't cover them up. They're there. But we're not trying to present ourselves as, as perfect or, or flawless in any way. That's a godly sincerity. And here's another reason why that's important, and that's un, still under uh, this first application, and that is that Christ will be judged by our actions. If you're a Christian, you need to know that people who are outside of Christ will judge him by your actions. I'm not saying that's right. I'm not saying that's fair. I'm just saying that's how it works. And that's how it has always worked. Paul had such integrity that he was able to, to say basically, you can believe what I am saying because I'm tied to God in Christ and he doesn't waver and neither will I. Now that caused me to ask myself this week, and can I be that confident to say that about my actions? And how I reflect on Christ. Can you? And then the second aspect of application is there needs to be a focus on Christ and not his followers. Almost seems like like the opposite. But let me explain. If you're not in the church or you're not a Christian, because if you would say, here's why, because of what I've seen in Christians or because of how uh, a Christian treated me or because of how I was treated in some church, if, if, if that's a part of your story, first of all, I want to say, I'm really sorry that's been your experience. I really am sorry. But beyond that, I also need to say, you're looking at the wrong thing. If your focus is upon Christians and churches. There is a quote that is often uh, misattributed to, to Gandhi. And that quote is this, I like your Christ, I do not like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. Now, Gandhi didn't say that. At least nobody seems to be able to come up with any evidence that he did. But there was a Hindu-Indian philosopher named Bharadatta that did say that. And that's where most people attribute that quote from. And it was said to discount the need to become a Christian. Now again, if that's your story, 
I'm not saying that you don't have a right to look at Jesus' followers. If I thought that, I wouldn't have preached this whole message about how important it is for us to have integrity. And Paul wouldn't have spoken about how important that was in terms of his witness. You do have a right to look at the behavior of Christians. But we are a motley crew. And far too often, we fall short of the one we follow. Even the best of his followers fall short. But true Christians don't claim to be perfect. In fact, it's our understanding of our imperfections that cause us to know of our need for a Savior in the first place. So here's what I would ask you to do. If that's been your story of being mistreated or mistrusting individual Christians or even a a church, don't stake your eternity on my behavior or the behavior of any who claims to be a follower of Christ. Stake it on whether Christ is true or not. I would implore you that that's the only thing that you should determine your eternity by. Christ keeps his promises. And that's what really matters. Let's bow together. Lord, I know that this passage has convicted my heart and I pray that you would use it in all of our lives. We do. We who follow Christ, we want to be a right reflection of him. And so, Lord, will you help us? We cannot do it without the strength and power of the Holy Spirit that dwells within us. And so we pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.